Hi, my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Meredith Cox, a professor of African American Studies and Anthropology at Yale. She's the author of the award-winning monograph, Shapeshifters, Black Girls and the Choreography of Citizenship, and also the editor of the 2018 volume, Gender Space. Amy's a dancer and choreographer as well. She performed and toured internationally with Ailey 2 and the Dance Theater of Harlem. In addition, she's choreographed performances as interventions in Newark, Philly, and our shared home of Brooklyn. We kick off this conversation with our no-holds-barred thoughts on Black women athletes and resistance. Let's listen in. I got it. That's a black woman's motto. I got it. I fucking got it, which is why I'm so in love with Simone Biles. Oh my God, I love all of it. You know, and Shikari. I love it. I am putting myself, my self care, my mental wellness. First. Fuck you. How revolutionary is that? It Our is really it. not not at all. And yeah. that's why I'm so inspired by them because the, I'm learning from them. Mm-hmm. And also not not even just like I need this self-care, but like I don't give a fuck what you think. Give a fuck. I don't care. Like I'm good. I know what I can do. Like I'm not out here trying to show and prove for you. Like this is mm-hmm. that to me meant so much in this season to see both of those women, all three of them really mm-hmm. like just, and even like, honestly, like some of my students who are of that generation who are like, Nope, not nope. doing it. Sorry. This is an unprecedented time or I am needing to take care of myself or my family. Like this is not that deep, like mm-hmm. really clear about what matters to them in ways that I just don't know that we saw models for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was like our self-care was to strive and achieve. Like, that's the benefit was supposed to come from that. And it didn't. You know what I mean? Like, the benefit was supposed to come from, like, doing the thing or, like, getting the accolade or achieving the thing. And with that was supposed to come all these other things, right? And then you realize it doesn't work like that. Like, you don't get a sense of self-love or self-worth from, like, grabbing at this shit. I distinctly remember feeling punished or sanctioned at any point when I felt like I was going to assert my own need Mm. for care above whatever the group Mm -hmm. dynamic Mm -hmm. was. I feel very like, you know, like I'm talking about it, my back is getting straighter. Like I'm remembering times, specifically in college is what I'm thinking about, where I felt like you cannot, it is not an option for you Mm -hmm. to choose or prioritize yourself. Right. Right. Um, and this is one of the many ways that I think this new generation gets it so much better than we did. Yeah. I mean, like, immediately you would see yourself or be labeled a problem. Like, you That's were right. problematic if you valued yourself enough to care for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's almost how dare you. Yeah. Yeah. Selfish. Yeah. 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 I'm glad that shit is changing. I'm so glad. Because we're dying from it. Like, I mean, like, literally, we really? are physically dying from it. Like, that level of stress... And the lack of like 
not just not caring for yourself, but what it means to not care for yourself to the point where you can't even listen to your own body. Like you're not even picking up signs of illness Mm -hmm. because you have so disconnected yourself from feeling yourself. Because in a sense, like the whole, like, I got it, like that, you have to disconnect from your own feeling to constantly be in that space of, I got it for everybody else. Mm -hmm. Because your body will tell you to stop. You know, you don't got it, right? Your body (laughs) is going to tell you. So you have to like, there has to be a disconnect. Like you sit down. (laughs) If you listen to it. So you have to like create that disconnect from your own body. Yeah. You've actually been one of my best teachers in learning that. Mm. and the way that you teach us to to listen to ourselves mm. and and the multi-sensory approach you take you know to the work where you're integrating all you know mind body spirit into these classes mm. you're my favorite yoga teacher oh i'm so grateful for the ways that you show up and teach us to to learn and love ourselves because it's an yeah. embodied practice isn't it yeah it very much is and i just Thank you for that, because I have been struggling with my own embodied practices um, since the pandemic, I would say. You know, I think that's one of the things that I've been listening to. And as much as you know, as Mm -hmm. much as I love yoga, I think I learned to love it. Like, I'm very transparent about my ambivalence, about my connection to the practice, but how that ambivalence, I think, speaks to the practice like to question to bring up these questions like what is your relationship to your body what is your relationship to movement what is your relationship to stillness and reflection and I've just been trying to access that through a return to my own lineage you know what I mean like how do I think about these things as a return to like how I was raised and the women in my life or the the family members who were using movement and reflection in these different aspects that we might call yoga or might call dance or we might call in in ways that speak to me so i'm curious about that say more about what you mean when you're talking about this connection to your own Mm, mm -hmm. so you know i think that so much of what we learn as black women i'm specifically as black women Mm -hmm. so much of what we are called to or we are required to learn or be trained in has been stuff that has been taken from us and repackaged back to us and we're relearning it again you know what I mean and so yeah. part of my um like falling out of love with a certain type of yoga was a remembering like just moving in my apartment and moving in ways that I was like oh this is how my grandmother moved I remember her moving like this mm-hmm. or this is the way that I moved when I was younger before I was in all of these training programs this is how I danced with my sister this is how I danced in the backyard like this this movement that in some I don't know in some fitness practices they have a name for it they've codified it right they've codified and they're teaching you how to shake your body and do all these things and I'm like we're always doing that and so how do I return to trusting what I already know what's already deeply embedded in my body and it's come from not just my family that's living but from deep deep ancestral lineage of like moving through the world and how you hold your body and how you release energy how you call energy in that's like embedded in us and so I was feeling very much that I mean and this is tied to like just all my feelings about like where I am with learning and training and always needing to like prove myself I'm just like I'm done I'm done with the certifications I'm done with the evaluation and the assessment that comes from particularly 
this sort of white Western understanding of who I'm supposed to be. Like, why am I constantly trying to get all of the things when I already know it? Yeah. You know, like I'm being, you know, and I think about, particularly when I think about the yoga context, that if you are a yoga studio owner, you don't necessarily need a love for yoga. You don't need even to be in your own body. You need capital. You need the ability to have that building That's or right. get that space. And so and for the most part, I found myself in situations where folks who were guiding me or telling me what to do had none of the experience or even passion that I had, that I was bringing to it. I was like, what? So this is all about like capital. Again, once mm-hmm. again, this is all about who has the capital means in order to create this space. But then again, they're like, they're, they're accessing the labor from people who have the actual skills, right? Like it's all these nouveau plantations, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I don't know if I want, I can't be a part of this anymore. You know, like how do I share, especially, I mean, the beautiful thing about all the zooming and being online is that you can do it yourself. I don't need to be in a brick and mortar. I don't need to be auditioned for your studio to be on your roster. I can do this through, I have a, I have a audience I have people will come to my classes or whatever I can do it through my own my own computer in my own home right and so I think that was a beautiful thing too about um being in quarantine is is remembering this the means that we do have right the means that we do have to be able to to share and communicate our gifts that we don't always have to go through these institutions right or these spaces that um require us to prove ourselves in ways that we don't even want to to do the thing that we were already doing in the first place you know and so I I guess I have to say that my (laughs) falling out of love was so much bigger than just the idea of yoga it was a falling out of love with the ways that I have been like socialized to believe that like if you do this you work hard enough you if you do this thing you get this accolade you get this certification you get this degree you're gonna be good right and then you can and then right it's always like do this and and then then. and then you can do your own thing and then you can write the book write this tenure book and then you can write the book you really want to write but show them that you can cite Foucault and Heidegger do that first and then you can do what is really on your heart right then you can do the other thing but first you have to do like the real thing that's the white thing I but I see us disrupting that which I love I see um a younger generation disrupting that and like really pushing back and challenging that. Like, I don't have to do this thing first to prove to you that I have the ability to do the thing that I love. That's, you know, so I don't know. I I just feel very much in this phase of my life. um, I resist the elder moniker in so many ways, but I do feel a sense of myself as an elder learning from a younger generation, not even so much sharing my wisdom but like really relearning how to be in the world from a younger generation as an elder or a certain type of elder it's really fucking trippy in a lot of ways you know what I mean <laughs> like I'm willing to step into that and, and learn from yeah millennial gen z I don't know <laughs> you know it's it's funny I hear the um the kind of interstitial space we're in as a generation you know, as you're talking, because for me, um, what's coming up is, is Baldwin's voice, you know, cause that, that, and then is a whole sermon in and of itself. Right. And I hear, I hear James Baldwin saying, and how much longer do you expect me to wait for your 
progress. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Right. Which is really a conversation about, you know, about the terms we set, the the contracts we make, the social contracts we make with each other, Mm -hmm. the ways that power is embedded inside of those that we don't even always necessarily see. Like it's, it's so much in the blood and bone of who we are as a society that sometimes having moments, you know, like one of the silver linings of the quarantine is that opportunity to step back and really think about, well, who am I and what have Mm. I been doing? And is this working? And for for whom? And for whom? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Like just the, the distance, the, the, the the privilege of the distance to be able to really interrogate Mm. um, the, the, the structures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. I mean, it's been a gift. Mm-hmm. It's been hard too because there's a sense of loss in yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? And it, and I think of mourning, and I think we have to forgive ourselves because we can only know what we know when we know it with the tools that we have to comprehend. But I just felt like a sense of mourning when I got to a place like, oh, this isn't about yoga. This is about everything. This is about the academy. This is about the way that I feel about my body. This is a way that I feel about my capacity to be loved. I mean, like fundamentally, mm-hmm. my capacity to be loved outside of all of these these bells and whistles. And I thought about how much time I've lost, you know, as I am in my last year of my 40s. I was like, what, how much time have I lost believing this bullshit? Mm-hmm. And really, like, even... Not even just time in the sense of, I wish I could get those years back, but like the wear and tear on the body and the psyche, yeah. right? What grooves have I established in my life physically and psychically that I will be spending the rest of my life undoing? <laughs> it maybe it's the, this moment of the 40s, mm. too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like... In your 20s, it's all about exploration. In your 30s, it's that proving yourself or that deepening, like yeah. the building of a professional foundation. Right. And in your 40s, you have a moment to be like, the fuck? Right. <laughs> right. What is this? Just what before was you that put at? yourself right. as an elder, right? Where it's like, I don't know. Just I'll say before you're at the cusp of, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And it's beautiful and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a melancholy aspect to it because there there's a joy because you feel freed up finally. Right. Mm-hmm. You feel mm-hmm. like clink the shackles opening and you're like, oh, I feel this freedom, like this permission that you finally given yourself. The self-possession we were talking to about. Self, yes. To possess yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a beauty in that. And there's a real deep sense of like joy and elation. But there's also that mourning. Mm-hmm. Like, what have I lost? And why did it take so long? And that's why when I look at, you know, those young women we were talking about, when I look at um, Simone Biles and Naomi, and I'm just like, wow, thank God they got it sooner. But my mother has said this to me. My mother, who just turned 79, has said to me, and I talk to her maybe three times a day, and in our conversations, mm -hmm, we talk all the time, honey. She'll say to me, I wish I had known that when I was your age. Like when we're talking about things going on in her life and processing, you know, her relationship with her sisters. And she's like, I wish I had known that when I was your age. So we keep learning from Mm -hmm. the generation before, right? As we, or the generation to come, 
yeah. the generation that's after us and they're learning from us yeah. right because they've had they're able to have these revelations because they're also watching us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I, I try I'm trying not to stay too long in this space of, of mourning but just like okay so now what so what does this mean now and when I'm presented with opportunities that feel like opportunities and feel shiny I can stop and be like oh but that's more the same is this really an opportunity or is this a way for me to feel more valuable because someone, oh, you want me, you like me, you think I'm smart enough? You th- Is that really an opportunity or is it just feeding into that ego? Yeah, you, you wrote about that or posted about that. Mm. And, and the chord that that thing struck, <laughs> <laughs> the comments alone. Yes. Angie, like if they have to embed it with this much prestige, is it re- what is it really at its core? Right. You have to dress it up so fancy. Why? If it's good for me, if it's mm-hmm. good for us, why do you have to put all of this dressing around it? Mm-hmm. This is a prestigious institution, <laughs> right? If you, you know, this award and like the, the ways that we work to meet these rubrics that we really don't even want to meet. Like if we really think about what the assessment is, like what we're being judged on, I don't even value that anyway. Mm. You know, the way that you're assessing me, I don't even value the measures that you're using to assess me. So why am I playing this game? You know, why am I continuing? And again, that and then and then or after this, it'll happen. And then. Like, I, you know, as I'm writing this this next book and I really feel like I'm finally kind of, well, able to write it. To, and I felt like the first book I was able to, too, to write in, in my voice. But it still has to reflect a certain academic structure, right? That I'm at a point in my life where I'm, I don't, I want to experiment. I don't want to write, and maybe I want to write in ways that aren't legible, that that require the reader to do a different type of work, or you know, that require you to be fully embodied and in relationship to the word. That is not in this 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 standard kind of what we call smart theorizing. That I'm. Kind of not no longer invested in, you know. There's many ways to theorize. I'm trying to remember which book it was she was talking about. The Chimamanda uh, Ngozi Adichie talked about that. I think it might have been with the writing of Americana. Mm, mm-hmm. um, have you seen her talk about this? She, I have not. You know, what? I'm gonna find that clip and I'm gonna send it to you. Okay. It feels like it would resonate with with where you are right now. But she was just talking about the idea of what it meant to be in the box of how she was supposed to write. Versus what it meant for her to break free from that very intentionally in the midst of the writing process. Mm. I no longer want to do that thing. While she was writing. Yeah. yeah. That's a word. Because I'm in the middle, like, literally, when I leave you, I'm going back to, like, I was in the middle of a sentence, dot, dot, dot. You know, and then I just <laughs> do, like, bullet points. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Don't forget. Uh-huh. And I find myself, depending on the time of day I'm writing or how I'm feeling, that I flow in and out of that. Like, I flow in and out of being more courageous with how experimental I want to be. Like, sometimes I'm like, I'm going to just leave this sentence like this. They're going to figure it out, right? Like, because I know the audience that I'm really speaking to, like you, or will understand what I'm saying, right? I'm going to leave it right there. And other times I'm just, like, tired and just do the thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's easy to just do the formula. Or not, sometimes it's becoming less easy, I will say that, to do the formula. But I'm noticing that depending on where I am energetically, how I'm feeling it's more or less difficult to write from that place of genuine, like authentic um, speaking from my truth, Mm -hmm. you know? 
Seth will learn the rules to break them. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm just pissed that we have to learn these. (laughs) We always have to learn three sets of rules. We have to learn. You know what I mean? Like, it's like we're always maneuvering through at least at least three sets of like rubrics to prove ourselves into all these various audiences. And it's I mean, you know, and I think to your point or to our point about like, who are we doing this for? I think once we realize that the question of audience and like who are we writing for who are we who are you making this lineage for who is it for Mm -hmm. once we're clear on that i think the work the creative work around it becomes so much more easeful because you know who you're speaking to you can picture that that person it's not you're not trying to like break down the wall do you hear me do you hear me do you understand me it's like you're, you're in a flow you're in a conversation well then it's also this idea of like uh, of lineage really right like making work that speaks to this moment that we're all mm. living through but also knowing that that we're writing for future generations that's right you know that's right so what does it mean to to craft your work in a way where you're clear that this is something that will be a resource for people you know decades and decades mm-hmm. and decades from now mm-hmm. and you want that resource to be something that's truthful yeah so they can be like, oh, that's what it felt like to be in that time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To be in that body, to be the, in that experience, mm-hmm. not in somebody else's experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have enough, enough of those books Ooh, and those movies and those everythings, right? We have enough of that story. So let me, let me switch gears a little bit. I want to go back um, with you to, to your childhood. What were, what were your first experiences with dance as a child? I danced in middle school and I was dancing with Miss Connie, Miss Connie School of Dance. And she had like a little flat above like the real estate agency in our neighborhood. And you did ballet, tap, jazz. And Miss Connie told my mother, she was like, she's got real talent. I think she should audition for CCM, which was the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory that was attached to um, the Cincinnati Ballet. Mm-hmm. And that they had like their own pre-professional program. She was like, I think she's it's time for her to, to audition. And I did. I was in sixth grade and I auditioned. And I, you know, so ugh, those moments, I mean, I can really feel myself back in that moment in that audition at that bar. And I could hear them whispering about me. And I was thinking like, don't they know I can hear them? Like they were talking about my body Hmm. and they were like, well, she's kind of like, well, she's developed. Like I had more than I do now. I had tits and ass Hmm. and I could hear them saying, and I was like, don't they know I'm a child? You know, as a child, how you think these things, but you're like, they, I'm a child. Don't they know that I can hear them? Like, don't, do you think that they would imagine that this might impact how I'm performing here? Right. But I got in and I, that was my life. Ballet was very much my life. Every day after school, I would take two buses. And then when I was driving, I would drive down to the university and I was dancing for three hours every day after school and on the weekends. And I loved it and I hated it. It made me feel great. It made me feel like shit, like equally, you know? Yeah. Um, but I loved moving my body and I loved being challenged. I loved challenging my body to try to do something that I didn't think it could do. Mm-hmm. And I loved to jump. I had ballon. Like I could, I could hang in the air. I, I like, I could leap and like, there was like an arc to my jumps. Like I was a jumper and I loved, it felt like I was flying. What does that feel like? Oh my God. There's a moment where you just feel suspension. Like everything stops. 
It's like that slow motion moment where it, like you you were to take a slow motion picture of someone leaping. Mm. Like I would feel that in my body. But with the music, like, but I would still be on the music. But that's when I realized, like, that you could fuck with time. Because I was like, oh, there's a way that I'm in the air. And the other, they've already hit the ground, but I'm still on beat. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, but I'm still with the music. But there's, I said, oh, there's pockets then. There's, like, pockets in time. Like, it made me really understand a different way of relating to time. I was like, there's a way that there's, we're all kind of moving together, but I'm like finding more time in this rhythm. You know what I mean? It. So I just, I loved, yeah, thank you for that because you're making me realize this. I'm trying to write something about time and this is helpful. But I think that's when I first realized that time ain't the same for everybody. Even as we're occupying ostensibly the same time space, it can feel very different to me and I can create more of it maybe. There's so much to that there's so much there I'm thinking like there's so much popping up in my head one is is Brittany um, Cooper's TED talk on time she talks about time time as being a white people's a function of white folks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, then there's that meme like going around online um, I'm gonna mess some of it up but if you wanna stop time kiss if you wanna travel in time read if you wanna mm-hmm. um, there's like four or five different things where where, you know, it's like all the different ways that we can kind of play with the idea of time. Um, and then also, of course, just this idea of, of linearity. Yeah. Right. Like how real is that? Really? Exactly. Especially for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have never existed in this linear time. We couldn't exist in linear time. Like mm-hmm. we have to understand ourselves as constantly cycling back and forward I mean, even the conversation we were having about the generation that's coming after us, mm-hmm. right? Who are like somehow from the future, but like everything that they're learning came from a past, a time before. You know what I mean? Like it's just, yeah. it's, it's, there's no way to really, I think, be in this world and live fully within linear time. It's some mm-hmm. bullshit. <laughs> it's killing us. <laughs> you know, deadlines. It's all manufactured. Like I think yeah. it's the cruelest, actually. I do think it's the most traumatic um, terror that whiteness has produced is linear time. Say more. It has forced us to exist and create in a space that is completely manufactured and not organic. Um, I think it has truncated our ability to dream and the possibilities of dreaming because we're creating these artificial beginning and endpoints. Can you, like, if we really understood the way that time operated, and I don't even mean just, like, culturally and socially. Like, this is some, ba- I mean, I can't break it down because I'm not a physicist, but this is some basic phys- physicist type shit. Like, this is, like, scientific. Like, the way, we do not exist in linear time. But we we move through it. We move through life as if we do, right? Everything is ordered a lot. What time are you going to be there? You're late, right? This is doing it even the months, right? I have 10 days to do this thing. And I'll never forget, I was struggling. It could have been any time because I'm always feel like I'm struggling with the deadline. And I was really struggling. And it really, I don't, it wasn't, it was nearly impossible. Do you know what I mean? Like it was some crazy shit. Like I had to like, it would be the equivalent of like maybe having to write 30 pages by like tomorrow noon or something, good pages. And I was talking to my father about it, and he said, and I was so mad at the time. I was like, I hung up the phone like, you don't understand. I was so mad. But he said, 
you can play with time. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is do da 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 And he was like, you can extend time. And he, the angrier I got, the calmer he got. He was like, mm. you can, if you really, you can extend time. He was like, what do you need to do? He was like, the time will bend to make sure you can do what you need to do. He was on some And I was like, what are you talking about? You're not giving me any concrete. Like, what do you mean? He was like, if you really believe, if you really are grounded in what you need to do, time will bend to make space for that. And it somehow, I was so desperate that I allowed that to be like a meditation. I was like, okay, like, I don't like, what else do I have anything to lose? Like, I have to try something and this is impossible. And somehow I felt... I felt that, like, the the way I was talking about that leap, I felt that, like, expansion of time. I felt that, like, <gasps> I felt like there were, like, at least four hours that were somehow I gained in that day. Mm. And I can't explain it. I can't explain it. But it was that same feeling that I used to have when I was, like, in high school and I was, like, had that ballon because I had to choose between um, track and dance because I love jump. I was a hurdler. Mm. And like that same feeling like, <gasps> like I'm continually trying to recreate that sense of like breathlessness, like mm. catching air and breathlessness and that feeling of almost like being emptied out. You know, like when you, if you run, like where you're just like, there is no more in me, you know, there is no more in me. And I, and I, I don't know. I think part of what is so, addictive to me about that feeling is that then I don't have to do anymore <laughs> you know what I mean? it's like we're talking about doing the most it's like I have done it like I cannot move another muscle I cannot like I'm barely t- like it's an it finally is enough you know what I mean we talk about being enough like that feeling of being emptied out you have no other choice but to be like enough like I am enough that was enough there is no more and then there's like a rest behind that. Oh, a fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about joining Ailey. Mm. Well, I was in, I was at Vassar. I was in undergrad and I found out late in the game that I could have actually graduated a year early, but I was, you know, my family was in Cincinnati. I had just met, um, most of my friends were from New York. I was nervous about being in New York. I didn't know what I would do. Like if I graduate early, am I going to go back to Cincinnati? I didn't have a plan. So I spent a semester with Dance Theater of Harlem. And because I was ballet trained, I was straight ballet girl, bun head, point shoes, the whole nine. I was straight up like ballet. And really Dance Theater of Harlem was my ideal because I wanted to be be a classical ballet dancer Mm -hmm. I was there for a semester and it was so hard it was it it was hard because I thought it would be different I thought it would be different than my ballet training back in Cincinnati which was very 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 white as you might imagine but I thought it would feel different and I was disappointed that it didn't and there was at that time now I'm sure it's different now but at that time there was a lot of colorism and I was like are you freaking kidding me like I had to leave Cincinnati where the entire time I was there from middle school to high school I was teased by these white girls pretty much for the entire time it was like really it was hard I mean and I got roles and things like that because I had talent but it was difficult and I came to Dance Street of Harlem thinking that it was going to be like ah 
the holy grail, right? <laughs> Ballet and is black. And there was a whole other thing happening that I was not prepared for. There was like colorism. Mm. There was like the Puerto Rican girls who were getting the parts. There was a lot. I was like, this is dance theater of, of Harlem. What is happening? And so I was there for months. And then Lloyd, I can't remember his last name. He has since passed away. Mm, and his soul rest in peace. He was a beautiful man. He was one of the principal dancers in the company and just had this big, beautiful chest and was just like, just a big man. And he would watch our classes and he liked me a lot. Like, I just loved him. I knew that he really had a fondness for me, like really saw me. And he, towards the end of that semester, he was like, baby, he was like, it's never gonna happen for you here. He was like, I see you working so hard. He was like, I think you're a beautiful dancer, but he will never, he was talking about Arthur Mitchell. He was like, he will never see you. You will never be cast. He was like, you, you should go to Ailey. And of course I had heard of Ailey. I knew Ailey, but I didn't really know it like it's known now. You know what I mean? Like, it, I was like, Ailey. And I was like, but that's modern dance. He was like, you, because I didn't really, Ailey is basically ball, so ballet based. Like, you can't really be in that company and not have a strong ballet. There's no way, ballet background. Mm-hmm. And he he was like, you should go to Ailey. And so I was just like devastated. I was like, he, I can't dance. And he was like, it's not about you. It's just not the space for you. So I I had teachers at Dance Theater of Harlem. This is this black dance tradition. They were so mean, but I knew they loved us too. But they were like, oh, they were so mean. They would say things like, your feet are so sickle. This looked like the Harlem hospital, all this sickle selfie. I mean, they were just like, poor, they were just like, oh, you would say things to them like, you know, should I, you know, should I lose weight? How much weight should I, should I lose? And it just keep going till we say stop. That's what they would say, stuff like that. Like it was just, a, and it was just like, bringing up all this stuff from Cincinnati and I was like it's supposed to be different so one of my I think hardest teachers at at um Dance Suite of Harlem when I went to audition for Ailey's scholarship program he was on the board and I went across the floor and it was time to do those leaps and I heard him say to Miss Jefferson who has also since passed she was the director of the school he said that's my baby and I was like you know, and I, fe- and I was like, oh, I felt that. Like, you know, so I was um, after, I w- so I was in the scholarship program and they told me to come back after I graduated from Vassar. And so I graduated and I was back in the summer on scholarship and then they invited me to be in the second company. And it was a different level of difficulty for me. It was hard for me and it was hard emotionally it was hard spiritually it was hard culturally and I found myself feeling not enough in that space Mm. and it was and I I didn't know what to do with that because I understood what was happening in Cincinnati I even understood what it was I was mad about it but I understood what was happening at Dance Theater of Harlem but to come to Ailey I felt that I wasn't black enough wow and I didn't have, you know, we were learning revelations and we were learning all these amazing classics. And I didn't have that cultural background. I didn't have a Southern, like I grew up in the Midwest and it, I didn't grow up in a white community, but I just, I didn't have that, those same cultural references necessarily. Like my church, I grew up in a black Catholic church. 
Like even with the fan, I remember the yellow section, you know, the yellow mm -hmm. section, mm -hmm. we were learning it and we performed it. We were on tour and we were performing girl. They'd be going right. I was going left. I was, they were down. <laughs> I was up and I'll never forget Sylvia Waters on the tour bus walked back and she said, if you don't learn that choreography, I'm going to have to pull you from yellow. And I don't want to do that. And I knew she wasn't going to, cause she couldn't cause it, but I was just like, I just, it wasn't in my body. I mean, it is now, of course. Like, the way that I um, was being asked to move, I had never been asked to move like that. Mm. I mean, that's how I was moving before the training. This is another example, right, of what the training extracted from me. Before I, I, before Miss Connie, before CCM, that's how I was moving. That shit was trained out of me for the line and for the you know, for the technique of, a, of, of, of classical ballet, which you had to have at Ailey, but you also had to be able to break that back and do something else too. And I just hadn't, that part of my dance knowledge or vocabulary had been extracted from me. It's so interesting to me because that's the way I felt about academia. I was like, I'm being taught away from myself. <sighs> that's a word. Even even the language, like I got very good at being able to speak academies. Yeah, yeah. To the point where it became my default. Mm -hmm. But that's a foreign tongue, mm -hmm. and it's specifically designed to exclude. exclude totally to exclude entire populations of people totally. Right, which was yeah, at the, at, like directly oppositional to the work that I wanted to use it to do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 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 I my hope is that we can move through the traumas that we have been subjected to and not subject the next generation to the same thing. We can move through them and learn from them and do the work to try to remove them for those who are coming behind us. That's what I need us to be passing down, not replicating and recreating these systems of trauma once we get through them. Ooh feeling like you, I did it, I'm a haze you, or like, this is just what it is. You'll be all right, you'll get through. The... No, I need us to stand against that shit and refuse that model. Like, I, I got through it, but that doesn't mean that you have to. I got through it so that I can put it into this. What you're describing now is essentially the mission statement of what I'm working to do with lineage, mm. right? Um, which is, you know, understanding that what we're moving through now isn't happening in a vacuum, that we have traditions, we have That's stories right. that we can pull from to help fortify us in this moment, that we have people who came before us who experienced this and more, mm. right? Um, and to know those shoulders. That's right. That's right. right. Um, what stories have been passed down either in your family or from artistic ancestors that that help shore you up in moments like this? Mm. Mm. I think about my mother who was raised by my grandmother in West Virginia. Her father, my mother's father died when she was three. My grandmother raised 10 children on her own. Mm -hmm. All of them went to college. My grandmother was born in 1898. Um, I think about the way that those women, my mother and her sisters, 
found a way out of Clarksburg, West Virginia to chart their own lives in DC and Cincinnati and went through, you know, these same sort of institutions that I'm moving through now. So my mother, she, she was in college and never bought a book once. She was like, I just borrowed, I figured it out. Like mm-hmm. these ways of being resourceful um, while moving through these institutions and these spaces that weren't built for them but still maintaining a sense of who they are and where they came from and using that foundation, that familial love, using that community love to make their way through these spaces, right? Where they, where they knew that they weren't necessarily always seen or valued. And so I'm, I mean, in this moment, <laughs> I'm grasping for a lot. Like I'm thinking about the, the way that my father talked about time years ago. I'm thinking about how, um, my family, especially the women of my family, moved through these these spaces and maintained a sense of who they who they were or who they are. I think about my father who got a full scholarship to Harvard. This was in the freaking fifties, sixties, and couldn't go because that's how broke he was, right? Like it wasn't even like how how do you even get there? How do you okay, so I don't have to pay tuition, but how am I gonna live? Mm-hmm. And also was worried about his mother and wanted to be close to his mother. And his brothers, some of his brothers who, I mean, they're all successful, right, in this way. Like, they all have all done well. But um, he went to visit one of his brothers in D.C. This was, like, maybe a few months ago. My sister told me this story because I wasn't there. And his older brother was like, as always says, and this is my younger brother. He got into Harvard. Like, he's always saying this. He got into Harvard. He's like, man, I just wish you would have gone. And my father's like, what, what, why? You know what I mean? Like, he didn't need that. He was like, I know, I know I'm, like, I didn't need Harvard to tell me that I'm smart. Mm-hmm. And my father's like, I'm a farmer and an educator, right? That's how he's like, and I'm proud to be that. Yeah. Like, I don't need to, you know, as we're, and it's so ironic, you know, my sister's like, as they spend so much time talking about Trump and talking about whiteness and how, you know, this political moment yet still, kind of valorizing that very white space like and not even seeing it you know so I think about those moments and what my parents have valued outside of these institutions like knowing your value prior to the event prior to sending in the 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 book right or finishing the product knowing that you are valuable in and outside of that work so it's yeah yeah. Yeah. And I do think, too, you know, I think about the stories of, again, I keep going back to these younger women who are like, I, I, I will be excellent and I will create and I'm an artist and I'm an athlete, but it's not going to kill me. It's not going to kill me, not just physically, it's not going to kill my spirit. Hmm. I'm so grateful for that model. And so that's what I think about. Like when I go home to write today, I had to think like I'm, I have to write with in mind who I'm writing for and write from a place of joy and not like I have to finish this thing this deadline I have to turn this in I cannot I can't write from a space of resentment which Mm. is what I have been struggling with right but to write from a place of joy to write from a place of gratitude and to write to think about who I'm writing for otherwise there's no way it's going to happen I think my final question for you is that um, I wonder, like I, I feel like I put the Dunham 
thing on you, like that crown mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on you. But but who who do you look to artistically? Hmm. Um, wow, that is a really question I should have been prepared to answer. I think there's so many people. I think there's a collage of people. Um, I look to Nina Simone for how she performed, how she showed up. Do you know what I mean? Like with so much ferocity. Yeah. I look to her when I when I sit down. I think about her. Like boom, boom, sit. You know, I think about her fire and the way she was just so resolute, like so sure. Um, is deeply inspiring to me. Um. I think about the way that Octavia Butler dreamed mm-hmm. and to dream beyond this space and time to have um, imagination in my toolkit as a weapon. I do. I just, you know, Nina, Octavia. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned Catherine Dunham and there's such an obvious connection there. And I've always felt that. And a few summers ago, I was um, going to get certified in the Dunham Technique, which is a whole thing. There's a whole mm-hmm. Dunham Institute. And I was, and I have to say, I realized that wasn't what I was supposed to do. Oh, yeah. And I felt in some ways like a spiritual disconnect from Catherine Dunham. And I felt like, I, I was like, this is so, and I felt troubled by it. I was like, this is supposed to be my foremother. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, this doesn't feel right. And I realized that there was a way that I think she was speaking to me, like, do your thing. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't have to go through, like, you don't have to go through this very sort of on the nose, I'm going to be certified in Catherine Dunham. Like, do your, do your own thing. I really felt that. That's interesting. Um, Zora, of course, right? Zora and the way that she wrote so fearlessly, again, like my student I was talking about in her tongue. Mm-hmm. you know for out of deep love for for her people like that to me is the the model for like why why write why even do this it's hard mm-hmm. all of it like what you do you're an artist it's hard yeah. if we can't keep at the forefront for whom and the why then it, it becomes almost impossible or at least like minimally ungratifying <laughs> right deeply unsatisfying <laughs> So I think, yeah, Nina, Octavia, Zora. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I did the last interview before you was um, Lynn Nottage. Mm. And she was talking about, um, for her, the, the one that people assume she's in the lineage of is, is August Wilson. Yeah. yeah. Um, for many obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but she actually studied for a bit under, under Mr. Wilson and didn't feel as invested in by him as he invested in the male students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's when we meet these icons mm-hmm. and I, you know, or meet their, you know, or come in some type sort of contact with them and we're like, oh, maybe being part of a lineage doesn't mean necessarily like taking the baton and running with that same baton, mm-hmm. but being inspired by that ability to carve out a space so that you can carve out your own space yep. over here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. It's not a. It's not prescriptive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. 
You can follow us on Instagram at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The Lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images, and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. Thank you.